This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. And welcome to Sightlines, your guide to the visual arts in and around Dunedin. I'm Sally McMillan, and this show is brought to you on behalf of the Dunedin Public Art Gallery Society. Today I'm talking to Clive Humphreys about his life in art and academia. But first, here's DPAG Society President Ross Curry with the latest on the Dunedin arts scene. This is Snapshot. Ross, April is a rich month for art lovers in Dunedin. Tell us what's happening. It certainly is rich, Sally. The Tuhura Sculptural Invitation at the Milford Gallery goes through to April 15th. Tuhura means to discover, disclose, explore and investigate. For me, this show has a broad range of standout pieces from a wide selection of New Zealand's top sculptors. Don't miss this immersive experience. And what else is coming up at Milford? The Auckland-based painter Piata Larkins shows at Milford from April the 21st. Her work is quite interesting. She uses paint to explore digital information, binary opposites and weaving grid lines. And for something completely different, what's across the road from Milford at Brett McDowell Gallery? At the Brett McDowell Gallery, until April the 20th, there's an exhibition of Kesai Aysen's work. Kesai was born in 1790 and died in 1848. And along with Kunisada and Kuniyoshi, he's regarded as one of the leading woodblock artists of the Edo period. His specialty and area of expertise was Bijin Ga, pictures of beautiful women. What about some of the other galleries around town? The PC Art Gallery in Port Chalmers has a photography show by West Auckland photographer Heidi Thayers, opening on April the 6th. The show is called A Suite of Tales. Haley manipulates her photos to create dreamlike compositions, and her work has been described as chilling, beautiful, provocative, and eerie. The stories behind the frame are full of drama, melodrama, and dreams. That sounds amazing. And speaking of amazing, we have a show by current Francis Hodgkins fellow Sorowit Song Satir at the Hocken. Yes, looking forward to that. Sorowit's new work is showing at the Hocken until June the 17th, so you've got plenty of time to get down there. Check out our interview with Sorowit and Sightlines, episode 17, on our website, dpags.org.nz. The 2023 Francis Hodgkins Fellow is Emily Hartley Scudder, who joins a long line of prestigious New Zealand artists. All through April at the Artists' Room in Dowling Street, popular local artist Tessa Barringer is showing her work alongside sculptor Claire Jensen. Tessa is a graduate of the Dunedin School of Art and specialises in hyper-realistic pastels of birds. Claire's latest focus is feathers carved from salvaged native timbers. And last but by no means least, what's on at DPAG? Well, certainly not least, at the Dunedin Public Art Gallery, Robin White's major retrospective continues in April. If you didn't get to see it at Te Papa in Wellington, now's your chance. Our members can view works in this exhibition funded by the DPAG Society. Harbour Cone is one such work, and funds from the Society ensured that this iconic painting is now in the permanent collection. This exhibition spans a 50-year career and includes portraits, landscapes and collaborative works with artists from across the Pacific. It also includes work from her time on Otago Peninsula. 
You're not a real Dunedinite unless you've been to see that exhibition, Ross. Thank you. And now it's time for our feature item. This month on Sightlines, we are disproving the old saying, if you can't do, then teach. Clive Humphreys is a printmaker and painter whose work is represented in major galleries and private collections throughout New Zealand and abroad. A 1970 graduate of the Kingston College of Art and Design, London, Clive came to New Zealand in 1975 and worked full-time as an artist for a number of years before joining the staff at Otago Polytechnic School of Art, where he was a lecturer, then head of school until 2019, when he moved to Waiheke Island to focus on his practice. Clive was awarded an Honorary Master of Fine Arts from Otago Polytech in 2020, a measure of the esteem in which he is held both as an academic and a practising artist. Clive, welcome to Sightlines. Thank you. Now, you've returned from the cyclone ravaged north uh, for a brief spell. What brings you back here? Two children and three granddaughters, basically. But also, I'm invited from time to time by the art school to be an external examiner. So home, in fact, has been a few places throughout your lifetime to date. I think you're from the UK originally. You moved to Dunedin and you're now on Waikiki. What brought you to New Zealand in the first place? Uh, a woman. <laughs> Isn't that always the way? <laughs> yes. No, I'm, um, I met a New Zealand woman who was on her big OE. And at the time, she was very uh, concerned about getting back to Dunedin, getting back to home and family. And I was over where I lived in London, and I wanted to move somewhere quieter. And so, so it became, yes, it became a, um, a done deal, really. So you came to pursue a serious relationship, but I think also a serious art practice. Sure, yes. I had been a secondary school, I drifted into secondary school teaching, which I really enjoyed, but it pointed up to me the need for me to uh, be engaged in my own practice, which I started doing, you know, evenings and weekends in London. But when I came to New Zealand, I, I came with the notion that this was an opportunity for me to set up um, my own practice. Okay, so you came to the quiet repose of Dunedin. How did that pan out for you? It panned out really well. I found Dunedin a wonderful place to work. No distractions, very quiet. Lots of quite cheap rentable space, you know, cold rentable space in big warehouses. And slowly I acquired a bunch of friends who were working in in the same circumstances as I was. So uh, they, f- they felt a kind of collegiality here as well. And so, that's something that a lot of the artists and people involved in the arts that we speak to commend Dunedin for, oh, is that absolutely. fantastic collegiality. Yeah. The other thing that a lot of people talk about is how difficult it is, though, to make a living as a full-time artist. How did you manage that? Well, I didn't, really. I... I, I looked around for the kinds of jobs where I might have time off and so I applied to be a postman, I applied to be a dustman, I applied for a whole lot of things which seemed to terminate around lunchtime so that I could have the afternoon in my studio and in the end I finished up working on the rubbish trucks 
for 18 years, in fact. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah it, it was great. Time. Yeah. yeah, exhausting, but it was a wonderful job. Keep you fit. Yes. <laughs> and at that time, at some point in time, you received an invitation, I think, from Graham Sidney that propelled you back into teaching. Yeah, yeah. When I had my first show, Graham was the Francis Hodgkins Fellow, and he was the first person to walk in my into my exhibition and we struck up something of a friendship from there and uh, he was at the time teaching an evening class in printmaking at the art school but didn't particularly have the skills in screen printing which is what i was doing at the time and so invited me to come come along and take that evening class for a block of silk screen printing and then the following year, he asked me to take over the class. So that's what I did. Um, mm. I did that for quite a few years. That led inevitably to um, being asked to come and do sort of guest appearances in the art school during the day, which was so, yeah. I thought it was a very gradual thing that, I, that my teaching career at the art school was very gradual. And so you ended up, I think, though, being offered uh, a contract and had to make the decision about whether you were going to become an academic or whether you were going to carry on being an artist yeah, in the afternoons. Um, <laughs> an artist in the afternoons, yes. Oh, I was only ever offered part-time work at the art school and I was very keen through my whole career. I was never full-time at the art school, even when I was head of school. So I always managed to ferret away, you know, time for me to uh, work in my own studio. I think that worked for me. Um, clearly doesn't work for everybody. I think the kind of energy that you use in terms of teaching, often people find that depleting in terms of their own practice. Yes. But uh, I found quite the opposite. I found it quite stimulating, actually being around students, um, discussing ideas, techniques, etc., was was highly stimulating for me. It's certainly something that we've talked with previous guests about, that sort of pressure on academics in the art world to publish and apply for grants and, um, of course, their mentoring students. You've managed to maintain that balance and avoid that tendency to drift away from the studio and into academic pursuits. I think the staff at Otago Polytechnic School of Art, there's a pretty hard core of them, aren't there, who do maintain their own discipline, their own uh, work. Absolutely. And I think they identify that as being uh, of paramount importance, that they, uh, when they're talking to students, particularly students who are going through difficult times or have um, in some way failed in some at some kind of uh, task that they've set themselves. Uh, the understanding that that is part and parcel of, uh, of a healthy practice, I think is really important. And I think they identify that as the real strength of the art school, that mm, most, the majority of the people who are working there are pr uh, practitioners. Yes. Yeah. I think you've said that, you know, as an artist, often success is predicated on a series of failures. Absolutely. It's quite difficult to nurse students through that. <laughs> but you can see that those times when difficulties be, become sometimes a little bit overwhelming, 
uh, they're the great opportunities to learn and to actually make uh, make progress. And the whole arts thing is very contestable, you know. So yes. there's people have to find it to a certain extent uh, have to find their own way. They have to find what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are, yes. and often. Instead of addressing their weaknesses, working to their strengths is actually a much better strategy. And I guess as an art educator, if you yourself are continuing to experience the success and failure dynamic, you're much better placed to empathise with your students who are experiencing the same thing. Absolutely. And knowledge of what's involved in that process, I think, is it seems essential to me. Well, I mean, your contribution as an art educator in Otago and throughout New Zealand really goes before you. But, of course, you have now jumped ship, so to speak, and gone to live on Waiheke Island as a full-time artist. Has the dream been fulfilled? Yes, I was a bit worried about it to start off with because you have to be careful what you wish for. And during my teaching career, I suppose, I was always thinking... Won't this be wonderful when I can work full time on my own work? And, uh, <laughs> the grass is always and greener. And then I, I always, you know, I, I was aware that uh, sometimes things don't work out quite the way you imagine. But in fact, it's been wonderful for me. I don't think that I'm that much more more productive. So I don't think I actually produce huge amounts more work. But certainly it's allowed me to slow my process down, to feel less urgent about um, maybe meeting exhibition schedules and things like that, and to ingrain it as a kind of daily practice. You know, I, I work. I, most days I would paint uh, five or six hours mm. a day. Where do you work on Waiheke? I built a studio underneath the back deck of our house. So I have all these roller blinds there, which I can put up and it's virtually like working outdoors. So you wouldn't so have been I'm doing right, that in Dunedin? No, no. It's, um, <laughs> it's like working in the garden. So I've got banana plants and canna lilies all the way around me, Fantastic. which is lovely. Yeah. That must be very inspiring. Does the environment on Waiheke inspire you? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I like I think that was the reason why I went. I began visiting Waiheke probably about 14 years ago and was um, my partner and I decided we were going to walk the island. So we walked all of the marked tracks on the island and came across places that were off the tourist map but were wonderful places and... Uh, one place in particular I've drawn and painted almost consistently for 14 years now. So uh, that's a place where I just, I feel right in mm. that place. It feels, it's quite difficult to analyse why. It's got a sense of peace and I feel a sense of both belonging and participation in this place. So so what is in this place? Tell us a wee bit more about that because a lot okay. of your recent work depicts this. Yeah, sure. There's a stand of uh, native bush which uh, contains a Nikau forest. It's a very um, old Māori settlement. So there's a Māori pa, there are kumara pits and middens in the forest. 
It's a hilltop forest which rolls down to a bay and a beach. So it's kind of where the forest meets the coast. Yeah, it's very, very beautiful. And along the coast are a lot of uh, these kind of sentinel uh, Pahutakawa trees, yeah. What other wildlife, if you like, <laughs> apart from trees, are there in that space? Because I know Waiheke is very well populated with, for example, native birds. Is that something that you will yes, see? Yes, the, the, the bay itself is a breeding ground for the New Zealand dotterel. And it's alive with uh, rosellas and um, tui and and just it's sparrows. Sounds <laughs> just astonishingly gorgeous. Yes, it is. The area that you have been focusing on is, I think, only about 20 metres overall size. You have been drawing and painting it for quite a long time, initially in black and white, but more recently you've introduced colour. Tell us a little bit more about that evolution. Because the, that small area, it, to me, is so visually rich... I started off by working on quite large-scale charcoal drawings um, and that was in response to an, um, an invitation to use a very large studio that's on the island and it seemed wrong to be using this huge studio uh, and making tiny work so I said yes I'd like to make some big drawings. And then that progressed into, um, particularly after a trip to England, and on that trip in London, I stumbled across a whole lot of exhibitions, uh, and they all seemed to be about watercolour, which I had a deep prejudice against. Um, and it's probably ill-informed because of uh, it was just a, an assumption about what watercolour painting was. But I saw some wonderful works, um, probably most prominently by Turner, um, and came back with this determination that I was going to sort of master some watercolour drawing. So my watercolours were just in black and white. What they gave me was this wonderful tonal range because you can paint almost with dirty water and hardly stain the white paper at mm. all. But it, the tonal range goes right the way through to being able to use watercolour as a kind of solid black, which um, was wonderful. So the techniques that I developed were techniques which also I had developed earlier on as a printmaker. So there was a lot of um, making of liquid stencils and then applying paint and then rubbing the stencil away. So it was kind of part additive, part reductive process. Amazing yeah. evolution of your of your practice, both in terms yeah. of medium but also technique. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm very stimulated by technical problems, <laughs> um, which uh, I know, you know, uh, there's a lot of current thought in visual arts that it is the concept which is so important and the technical considerations are less so I don't believe that mm. I think that the um, particularly in painting uh, the great challenge is how yes. to make an equivalent of what you're looking at 
uh, with the technical means that you've got available to you. So, yeah, and I also always saw myself as a colorist. So in the back of my mind, there was always this projection that when I got to Waiheke, that was when I would start mm. um, working with color. Yeah. So working in black and white as a, as a colorist must have been you know, something of a deprivation, sort of suffering for the development of your art kind of experience. <laughs> well, kind of, although I think of colour, um, I think the tonal, the tonal qualities of colour are extremely important. So, and certainly in printmaking, where one tends to work from light colours to dark colours, one had to kind of think that through almost three-dimensionally. And I extended that thinking through to, um, first of all, the watercolours and, and subsequently to the acrylics that I'm working on at the moment. As well as describing yourself as a colourist, I think you've also said that you were trained as a modernist. Has that also created some tension in your practice? Yes, it has, I think. Um, I think you can only look back on your own art education sort of at, in distant retrospect. But I, I do realise that I was at art school during a particular era in which uh, certain we were encouraged to do certain things like edit our work very strongly, always to uh, eliminate extraneous detail. There were a whole bunch of things which I was encouraged to do and which have become second nature to me. And, and not all those things are necessarily bad. However, I, I, I don't believe that the reductive impulse is uh, necessarily one that suits what I'm trying to do in my own work. I see the natural environment as extremely complex. Yes, and well it is. somehow um, the, the idea of summarising or... Um, generalising around a particular place. I'm really after particularity in my work. So the devil's in the detail yes, for you. Yes, so the devil's in the detail, exactly. Mm. Yeah. And I suppose you can't convey that detail if you summarise, simplify past a certain point. No, no. And I, I think uh, modernism has not necessarily got us into a great place <laughs> <laughs> yes well that might be another whole radio show all in itself <laughs> have your preferences also evolved in other ways throughout your practice for example i think you've said um you've been known to say that you've come to dislike didac didacticism yes i um, increasingly have a resistance to walking into exhibitions and feeling like I'm being pressured into taking up a certain position. I like to be invited to participate in the work in a way which is kind of open-ended. And so I resist that very much in my own work, um, although I am opinionated. <laughs> I'd rather those opinions were not forefronted in the work. I guess your work, though, does have a sort of indirect sustainability focus. So you're inviting people through your work, particularly um, the Waiheke work, to observe the beauty and importance of the environment and reach their own conclusions based on that rather than telling them what to think and do. Sure, yes. Yeah. I have a belief that the um, environment, environmentalism 
is a local issue. It's what it's what is happening on your back door, mm. and uh, the focus on a very small area um, is part and parcel of that. And the fact that I'm making these works in a global situation of um, catastrophe, if you like, environmental catastrophe, and it speaks for itself. Yes. So you're back in Dunedin for a few days, and I think you have an exhibition scheduled for Waiheke next year, and maybe another smaller show this year. Could we tempt mm. you with that? <laughs> <laughs> it's possible. I don't know. Yeah, um, but, um, yeah I, that's possible. Do you miss teaching? I don't, haven't altogether given it up. <laughs> I still, um, I still teach on the sometimes on the sort of distant ceramics course. There's a little outlet of that on Waikiki Island, which is thriving. Uh, seven students, I think, there at, uh, this year. And from time to time, I'll take workshops or. I do some mentoring for artists on the island as well. So I haven't altogether given it up, but it's becoming less and less. Yes. Mm. Clive, I think that you may be living proof that it is possible to both do and teach. Thank you for being back in Dunedin briefly and for joining us in the studio today. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thanks to you, our listeners. Join us again in May as we talk to ODT reviewer James Dignan about the underappreciated art of writing about art. If you'd like to hear today's show again or listen to previous shows, you can find us on the Otago Access Radio and DPAG Society websites. Thanks to contributor Ross Curry and producer Jonathan Quayoff. I'm Sally McMillan and you've been listening to Sightlines. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.